From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue in Lexa Cockerful, long delay in Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry, and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are writing for games and copyright in the public domain. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. <laughs> um, so we're back from PodCon 2. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. In Seattle. Still tired, it seems. Yeah, it happened. Well, we had the, the PodCon where we were traveling and then Global Game Jam where that you had to work happened. all weekend. So there was this is the first week. But now we're now we're doing uh Nice Games Club and Widget Satchel in one weekend too. So yep. nonstop. A lot of things. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, and we actually pushed back the recording of this. This is all inside baseball, but like <laughs> this episode's coming out real, real soon yes. from our calendar. Yes. So we we could we we should be really timely. Oh, it's yeah. like a, it's like a rare opportunity uh, to what, talk about things happening right now. Yes. So what things happened this week, man? I, I have feel no like idea. Nothing happened. <laughs> um, Record breaking cold. We almost froze to death. Yeah. Every one of us. Right. But I mean, other than that, we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my car stopped working. My oh, bike yes. got a flat tire. Oh. My coat broke. Oh my god. So like I, it was a disaster for transportation for uh, me this week. Dang, that sucks. Yeah. I got to work from home all week, and so I didn't have to go outside. <laughs> some people get all blown <laughs> some of us gotta wait for the train <laughs> it was not warm i'm yeah. sorry <laughs> it's okay well our furnace almost went out ah so. oh jeez. Mm-hmm. and here at glitch um we, we when speaking we rec- of furnaces going on <laughs> well when we record we have to turn the air conditioner or the heater off mm-hmm. because it, it it makes noise and we don't want any extra noise all right and it's it's a little tough right now yep yeah <laughs> It's yeah, it's too. I got my jacket on, so it's gonna have to help. Uh-huh. But it's yeah, it's real cold. Well, anyway, PodCon two. <laughs> yes, PodCon two happened. It was awesome. Mm-hmm, it was a fun time. Uh, Seattle is very cool. I can see why it's so expensive to live there because it is super nice, like way nicer than San Francisco. Yeah, I think. Yeah, and it uh, it rained when we were there. Yeah, so it was the the. Very on brand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was really fun. Yeah, we went to see uh, the Space Needle, and we also went to see, what was it, the Living Computer Museum? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was real fun. Yeah. It's so cool. They um, had all these old mainframes and old computers, and they were excited that we were there because they're like, oh, my gosh, you're from Minnesota. Half our mainframes are from there. Right, yeah. They did totally talk about that. That was really cool. Um, let's uh, post the link about it, because if you're ever in Seattle, you should check it out. Yeah, uh, we, uh, we posted a couple of tweets when we were there, too. You can see what nonsense we were up to. Yeah, um, it was a real, real good time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I got to make a punch card, um, and at PodCon I got to meet Justin McRoy, and it was really great. And I didn't <laughs> embarrass myself at all. It's true, she didn't. She was very proud of that fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a normal fan who will never be remembered, <laughs> which is exactly what you should be. <laughs> well, it's great because when we were um, at the end of PodCon, we walked back to our hotel. And we just like walked within millimeters of all three of those boys, yeah, just in the lobby, <laughs> right? And, like, and a lot of other people did too. They were just standing around, and like outside the context, nobody was like daring enough to be like, "Oh hi!" Like <laughs> everyone was just like, mm, "These are normal people." Like, we, we totally saw them at the airport too, right? They were on our flight home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was something else. <laughs> uh, I mean, they were in first class, but oh yeah, yeah right, right, right. It was a McElroy filled weekend which is all i wanted so <laughs> but we did learn some stuff about how to improve our podcasts and um maybe we'll we what else 
What, what, so what are some of the things we saw, some of the panels and stuff? Um, um, I mean, I went to a lot of ones about like how to improve your podcast and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and like how to... Well. <laughs> um, I will talk about that in our Nice Games Club meetings. Yeah. Um, no, but like, I mean, like, if if you're ever interested in making a podcast, um, I think that PonCon is pretty valuable for that because like, there's a whole lot of people there who are not just enthusiastic about listening to them, but creating their own. Um, and yeah. I felt like a lot of the people who were up, they did live podcasts, and a lot of them felt like open and honest, and and they had mm-hmm. question segments at the end, and it was like lengthy ones. They were like ten minutes, fifteen minutes. So like, it was a good time, good opportunity to ask people uh, how they did things. Or like what went well, what didn't go well. So like it's, a, I think it's very valuable. Yeah, so. there were two kinds of uh, like actually the workshop uh, st- stuff was yeah. pretty thin. Yeah, I would say. that's true. Um, that's my sort of my only sort of feedback for them is like I think a lot of the people who were there um, either ha- definitely had podcasts or just started them, and they all had like you know very few listeners or like a small audience like us. Yeah, and so uh, but they also big overlap also consisted of huge fans of po- of the podcasts. The were doing live shows there. So I'm pretty sure everybody had a great time and got a lot what they wanted. But I think that they, so they probably won't hear this a lot, but I, I think they should have more workshop content. I think a lot of the existing audience would benefit from that. Mm-hmm. They had one track, so there was always one going on, but only ever one. Yeah. And that was kind of just a hair disappointing. But there was a lot of really good stuff. The stuff they had was great. And there were two kinds of things that I saw. One were like, uh, you know, technical stuff like what you know, how to how to manage your mics and what equipment to use and what right. not to spend money on. Stuff, yeah. little you know, tips and tricks. And then also things like promotion, like how do you get an audience? How do you like? Uh, how do you structure your show uh, in in a way that becomes sellable? Or how do you get sponsors and things like that? Yeah. And those were sort of interesting. And I feel like our show, we've we got a lot of technical stuff down. We've been doing this long enough. Mm-hmm. And what was kind of nice is at those talks. Like, I didn't really learn a lot, but it was actually really nice to sort of hear things that we figured out on our own yeah. being parroted back to us by people who had made it. They're like, oh, great. It's not going to you know, make us huge that we figured that out, but like, we don't need to worry about that. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of nice. One of the only McElroy things I went to was um, uh, one of them did a thing called Watch Me Cut. Where mm-hmm. he edited a, a piece and just showed the, the, what he did, kind of almost as like a, a – he kind of described it as like a um, – Sort of like a well, if I can do it, you can do it kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, Stephen, you were there with me. Yes. And basically, like they're using some janky stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm just thinking, like, oh wow, they kind of don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and yeah. so it made me kind of like, oh, that's that's great, but also that's terrible. Like <laughs> it kind of was both. But I, I don't know. There are very mixed feelings about that. Well, it was like redeeming, at least for me. I yeah. was like, oh, we're just doing everything right. We're, right. There's. Technically, we're we're fine. <laughs> right. It was it put a lot of things in context. I thought yeah. was pretty good. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That was very good. Like, I like that aspect of it. Like it, um, the, the whole conference. Like it just put things in, you know, into perspective. Which was and cool. it was a really well like run show. Mm-hmm. Like as a as a bit of entertainment. Like the you know, opening and closing shows. Yeah. It was actually just a really fun like well put together with the resources they had yeah. kind of thing. It was pretty easy to get around. It was wet. There was signs posted well. Like for a small conference, they like they ran it really well. Mm-hmm. So good for them, you know. Well done, podcast. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, and then we also did the global game jam. Right, that was last week. Yes, that was that was. Uh, I was kind of stressed out about it before I started the actual jam. I was like, oh man, this is going to be a whole weekend. Oh, I got to <laughs> make this game. 
Oh, uh, what am I going to do? Oh, I have I just moved into this new place. Oh, I got to move all this crap and I haven't done all that yet. Oh, I was really stressed out about it. But like, and then I did it and it was just fine, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is great. Well, you're both going to have to tell me about it because I got there and I, I was really sick. Mm. And then I left after an hour. Oh. So I, and I didn't go back. So I basically missed out on the whole thing. So you guys have to tell me, tell yeah. me about your games, tell me about the process, tell me about the venue, tell me about everything. Sure. Um, so I made a game that was like, I, w- I really wanted to make a 3D game. So I worked with Rachel Peterson. Uh, we've, we've had her on the show before. It's not short. It's not short. <laughs> yes. um, she um, made assets for me in last year's goal. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so we worked together to make, she made uh, 3D models for this game as well. Um, and we made like a 3D exploration game. Um, actually, before we, the Global Game Jam theme this year was what home is to you or something like that. What home means to you. Yeah. Uh, and so our game is called Home is What You Make of It, which is literally you go out in the space and you gather a bunch of objects and then you bring it back to home and then you put them in the space. So you make your own home. Uh, it was really, it was cool because like I got to explore um, movement in 3D, which I've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I learned how to like project 3D um, objects on the UI, which was, uh, that was a whole struggle for me. My brother helped me a little bit with it because uh, it was it had some weird effects things going on with it, which was strange. You mean like a like a screen to world space kind of stuff? No, like uh, I used um, what are the render textures mm-hmm. to to um, to, and then like I was recording. I had another camera on where the three D models oh, were. Oh yeah, okay. And then I rec- um, yeah, and then I just portrayed that on the, the UI of it. Um, cool, it's really cool. It ended up working out really well. Um, but that was the game we made. I was I was it was a team of. Four, I think one of the people uh, we were working with was working remotely, um, did the music, and then another person, Lowell, who um, does the, he helps with the voice recordings at, at the um, at the game jam. Uh, he was also on our team, mm-hmm. and he helped build like he built the world. He put all the play- things where they needed to, or put all the things in his artistic vision, and it was really nice. Like a lot of the uh, the things that he made were really cool with the stuff that Rachel gave him. So mm-hmm. it worked out really well for me, I think. And you finished on time. You got to build up. Yeah, we were ahead. We were ahead of schedule. I think we were like ready to go. Maybe I would say we were ready to go two hours, and then we were just like adding small bits and pieces there and fixing random things, and then we were ready in about thirty minutes before it ended. Wow, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Martha, how did it go for you? Yeah, it went uh, really well. I also uh, was nervous about it because yeah. I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so tired." Yeah. Um. And I was just getting over being sick <laughs> at PodCon, so mm-hmm. uh, that was interesting. But um, and it was nice because I already had a team. We had formed a team um, on the Slack beforehand, yeah. so that that whole stress was out. Instead of being at the like pitches and the uh, team building thing, we went to a like cafe and just talked about what we wanted the game to be. Yeah, which was really fun. Um, uh. And uh, I ended up being a writer on the game, which is why my topic today is writing for games. <laughs> <laughs> is that the segue into the topic? I guess so, because I want to talk about the jam a lot in, uh, my, to- okay. um, <laughs> in my topic. Be- before we do that, I, I do want to bring up like uh, the global game jam, like the venue and stuff. It was very different this year because uh, we used to have it on the University of Minnesota's campus, um, but they uh, changed their policies. Though we, so we weren't allowed to have people there over the 48 hours during the night. Yeah. Um, so we had to try, we, it was a huge scramble to find the right, a new venue. And we ended up finding one in St. Paul at the TPT building. And it was way smaller than it um, ever was. 
Um, but it ended up working out okay, I think, right? Um, we ended up having enough space for people. Um, and people It was nice because it was very defined where you could or could not be. Like yeah. That was one of the things that the other building that was difficult is like there's a bunch of rooms that you weren't supposed to go into and sure. then you got in trouble for being in them and or like it just and also there's a lot of places for people to just like squirrel off and I don't know. It was nice being all in one room. It felt like a group. Yeah. Yeah, which was neat. Um so I guess for listeners who don't know, uh Global Game Jam is a global game jam. Yes. But there are local sites in cities all over the world. And so Glitch um organizes the Twin Cities space. Mm-hmm. Um I mean like not we wouldn't say official Twin Cities space, but it's the one that happens here, right? right? And anyone can can put up a venue and, and list it, but Glitch is the one who who steps up and does it for us in this community. Yeah, and uh, and that's what Stephen was talking about. Yes. The previous place on campus uh, had served us well, but had some quirks. Um, and then yeah, so the 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 TPT, the local PBS affiliate, they've been partnering with Glitch on a lot of stuff. They mm-hmm. hosted GlitchCon this year, right. this most recent year, and uh, and yeah, they have this lovely lobby with this presentation space. Yeah, um, that yeah isn't quite as big as the atrium in, in the, the previous building, but um, but is really nice. Mm-hmm. It's a great place. And yeah, they're, they're a good partner, and so they they sort of like um, yeah last minute they worked it out to to, yeah. to allow a bunch of random people to be there for forty eight hours. Right, which is a really really good. It's a it's like a amazing. It's a big ask. Mm-hmm. And they stepped up and said yes. Yeah. So it was very cool. Of yes. Them. Thank you so much for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I think that it went well. I mean, I haven't heard any feedback contrary. Uh, it seemed like like people were satisfied with it. I think that because of all of the last minute thing, I think our specific venue, the turnout was less than there was in the past. I'm not positive on that, though. Well, there was a shorter time for people to sign up. Right. So I think exactly. probably, and probably ended up working out with the smaller size of the place a little bit. Yeah. But there were still a ton of people there. Oh, yeah. No, it was packed. Uh, especially the first night. I think people started working home uh, remotely after the first night, but like mm-hmm. the first night it was, yeah, it was back. Uh, and um, yeah, I, th- I think we also had some like remote developers too, who were, I think maybe even some teams who worked remotely, um, which ended up working out okay. Yeah. Well, the Rachel, who you mentioned, right. um, or helped organize with some other people on on the Discord. Yes. Um, uh, people working remotely who had just planned to work remotely. And so there was, I think I'm not sure how much it happened, but there was a lot of uh, openness to having teams that were split between people working at the site and working from home and right. cross pollinization right. and stuff. There's a lot more uh, avenues of communication. Yeah, uh, I mean, we even had that. So yeah, yeah, it, yeah I think that was really a, a strength of it. Mm-hmm. Um, something that we, I felt like we didn't really have last year, anyways, is like an online presence, um, which is really neat. Yeah, yeah. And there were 29 games that were posted. Uh, yes, I believe from from that site. I believe so. Mm-hmm. Um, which is pretty great. So we'll put the link for it so you can play all of those. Yeah. Um. And uh, also, we will uh, glitch. will be having a play party in the near future. I don't know all the details yet, but yeah. uh, we'll maybe by the no, probably not by the time this thing is out. We'll Even this episode is the most timely episode we've ever recorded. I know, I'm <laughs> now is the time to tell people how many days from now it is and be basically accurate. <laughs> I just literally don't know. <laughs> well it'll happen one day <laughs> keep an eye out on the glitch channels yes. mm-hmm. so writing games yes oh you already did your transition i did I, now it's done it. but it's okay it wasn't very good anyway so <laughs> um good. so yeah at the global game jam i was a writer for the first time um, I've like been trying to write my own game, but I haven't really gotten anything down on paper yet. Mm-hmm. It's mostly been like brainstorming and like no actual dialogue yet. Um, so this is the first time I actually wrote like a complete dialogue 
thing and it was really really fun but yeah. also really really hard and like it was way harder than i thought it was gonna be. <laughs> but like at the same time i also felt bad because i felt like i wasn't doing anything like i didn't code anything and so i was like i'm being lazy <laughs> i'm just sitting here trying to think of things so i look like i'm just sitting here <laughs> you know in that one hour i was there you did tell me i am not going to code this weekend <laughs> so i don't know how bad you felt about it oh hey <laughs> i can all I, both Feelings can exist at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I wasn't coding, but I can also feel guilty that I wasn't coding and I didn't want to be. I I felt that. (laughs) (laughs) Because like, I don't know. I think people think that the coding is the hardest part because it like you have to know the most technical training stuff to make all the stuff in Unity work Um, because it's not the most intuitive thing ever. Yeah. So... So if you're doing something that's in the more creative side of it, it can feel weird. <laughs> but yeah, it's a different like um It's a different type of work. It's like yeah. it's like all uh it's creativity so you have to wait for like ideas to come together. Right. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, like it's a, a workflow isn't the right word, but like yeah, how how the things get created. There's some period of time where you need to like create the thing. Whereas with coding, you're constantly there's like a bar constantly moving forward. Um, I guess that you can almost say the same thing about art, but like there's always that sort that first starting process where you have to figure out what the heck you're doing. Yeah, I kind of feel totally the opposite. I feel ah. like they're exactly the same. Oh, okay. Like uh, when you're trying to come up with a, you're trying to build an architecture for whatever you need to do. Yeah, like that requires a little bit of sit down and and thinking on it. You're totally right. right? I, I I think I'm approaching it from like in a game jam. I'm like code quick. And right. immediately, I don't even think about it too much. And then yeah. I'm like, oh, why did I do this stupid thing five <laughs> hours into the jam? Uh, <laughs> there's but, probably also, to 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 play devil's advocate like, yeah. your position, is there's also probably a couple of things that you just, like, you have to do. Yeah. And so you could keep yourself busy with some of the, like, just have to tasks. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I, you're totally right. You do need to plan out your architecture, especially when you're, like, trying to, uh, if you're not doing a game jam game and you're trying to yeah. finish this thing. You want to make sure you do something, or do some planning ahead of time so that doesn't come to bite you in the rear end later. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I've always felt engineering is a is a create creative act totally just as much as yeah. anything else. I suppose it does feel different. To, mm-hmm. di- the process felt different to me than mm-hmm. other uh, game jams. Yeah. There are other roles that I've done. Um, because, like, well, I suppose it is pretty similar, but I felt like I was using a different part of my brain. Yeah. Because I was trying to come up with like narrative. <laughs> yeah, or like yeah. characters like one of the things um that i found really interesting is because like your character can only say so many things so you have to get their personality out through like a very it's like a haiku you have to like par down the words to just the ones you need basically yeah. mm-hmm. but also make them distinct from all the other characters like not because that was a hard time too because so I guess I should explain the game yes. that we ended up writing. Uh, the other, the other interesting. So I'll just I'll just tell about it and then tell how it came about. Okay. <laughs> so the story is that um, you are you play an old lady who is also a witch who shows up at a polar research station and makes everyone happy by granting their wish. By okay. combining items into other items <laughs> and then giving it to them. Okay. <laughs> and then everyone plays D&D and is happy. 
that's the end. <laughs> Where does home fit in all of this? <laughs> well, originally. <laughs> okay. Originally, our idea, like, that's the thing about having a group beforehand, mm-hmm. is that it solved the problem of um, there isn't one designer going around trying to say, oh, here's my idea. I'm going to sell you on my idea. And if you like my idea, you come and join me. And that person kind of takes point on the, like, idea of the game and the narrative of the game the and like des- yeah design yeah, yeah makes uh, has creative control of the band right yeah <laughs> um but when we had a group like already formed with no one person designated as like the creative control person um we spent so much time trying to like negotiate on what the game was going to be and so it went through so many iterations and the end thing is a kind of a amalgamation of everyone's ideas mm. so that's why it's kind of lots of things cobbled together and okay. not really on the theme because it's yeah i mean that's fine <laughs> global, it's not like global game jams a competition and also even if it was you could do whatever you want <laughs> it's true well the game started out like the first idea was like what you your game ended up oh, being of yeah. like oh you live in a bunker and you have to go out and get stuff to make it feel like home and like all these characters are you know uh, really really sad and then you get like make like decorate their house to mm-hmm. be all beautiful and homely and you know like warm and then they are happy yeah and that morphed into <laughs> to what it is now yeah <laughs> um so yeah cool so yeah there's pros and cons to like collaborating that way mm-hmm. because in the one hand like everyone's ideas got in there but on the other hand like the overall cohesiveness of it was not yeah. there. But mm-hmm. so you fill the role of the writer. And yes. so how how was that process like? How how did that go? So I worked really closely with Aaron, our artist. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of our artists, the character artist anyway, yeah. to come up with like interesting characters. So we came up with together, came up with like um who each each scientist at the station was going to be, um, and like what was their thing. Yeah. So <laughs> The, the like thing that they wished for, uh, the witch combined two things that made a pun. Yeah. So, like, the one person wanted a pineapple, so we made, had combined an apple and a pine cone. And another person <laughs> wanted uh-huh. the book, The Count of Monte Cristo, so you okay. combined a Monte Cristo sandwich with an abacus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and, yeah, so... Etc. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember there was one where it was like, oh, I don't. It's like the the gold one. Oh yes. So there's a pile of twelve carrots, and you find another pile of twelve carrots, and you uh-huh. put them together, and they form twenty four carat gold. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, we came up with the puns first, mm-hmm. and then made characters up for them. Yeah. <laughs> um. So we had like a like professor person who liked reading and a person who like really missed their partner. And so like a pineapple reminded them of their honeymoon in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, and like one person like missed their grandma and they lost their magic amulet that their grandma gave them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so then we decided, so we decided like um, because of the, constraints of the game jam being so short that we were just going to have one thing that they say if you hadn't given them the right thing like oh 
I'm sad. Yeah. <laughs> and then one thing that you that they say when they are given the thing that's right. And then a, a opening cutscene and a closing cutscene. Yeah. That's it. Um we had many more like ideas of like having interstitial like things when you walk by them or when you pick something up, other people commenting on the the like that idol. Yeah. Uh-huh. Or like, uh, why are you giving me this? Like like if you gave them the wrong thing, but um we ended up just being like, you can't give them a thing if you have the right thing and walk up to them. Then they're like, oh, you gave it to me. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Cool. So it was cool, like, collaborating with Erin on stuff because, um, like, the way the narrative was going informed how she was drawing the characters yeah. and how the characters were drawn kind of informed how I wrote them. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. That's cool because I know that in a lot of uh, games, a lot of games like the narrative team will get brought on partway through development instead of at the beginning of the process, and it makes it difficult to like patch things together in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. for the game. Uh, whereas if they were in the beginning of the process, they could have helped with some of the decision making, and then like it, the, I mean, the game would be different, but like maybe better for it because yeah. at least then the narrative and the design uh, and the game design would be meshed. Yeah, and you always hear a lot of stories of. Um, like this gameplay element influenced the narrative yeah. and then it all fit together really nicely but less often do you hear the other way around mm-hmm. where like this narrative like conceit this this point this needs to be delivered how do we do that with gameplay right because by that point it's that's ends up being too big an ask you know to, yeah. to like to modify yeah and so working within tandem then they just you know they sort of they don't ask too much of the other right right they they develop in tandem yeah yeah exactly so I, I imagine you had that experience then. Yes. Cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And not just with the art people, but yeah, also with the coders. Like, oh, what should we do this game mechanic? Does that make sense with these characters? And the voice actors, like, how do you want these people to sound? We just we got people to say grunts and stuff. So you walk up and they go, oh. <laughs> um, but uh, so that was really interesting, like directing voice actors to sound the way that you want them to. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just really cool to like collaborate with other people. Yeah, that's good. Um, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I don't have any experience at all really writing games. All of the writing in Fingence, um and Widget Satchel is not mine. <laughs> it's somebody <laughs> else on the team. Um, I just read it. <laughs> well, I think you're selling yourself a little short. Uh-huh. I mean, when we 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 have we've had lots of or like last year, yeah. it seems so long ago now, mm-hmm. but we would talk about the story and structure of a widget satchel yeah. and we brainstormed a lot of that together That's and a, a lot of the ideas in there are yours. That's true. Yeah, I did have some, I had creative input and such. I didn't do the it, act of It writing, all sort but, of like blends into the final form. Yeah. So maybe you don't remember exactly, but like, you know, but you do have, a, you do have a hand, more of a hand in that than you think. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, we involved it in earlier on in the, earlier on in the process. So mm-hmm. Like that's, I didn't even realize that I had that role, yeah. but I did have some have parts of it. Yeah, and that's that's a lot of times the difference is that you uh, like you um, the actual the writing the dialogue the, right. like, the the letters on the screen is not really the mo- the major work of of writing a game. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, I think that's important because yeah, that is that is influenced a lot by. Uh, the creative decisions that you made mm-hmm. during the process and such. Like Martha, when you're describing this, the concept, which is that these people need these two things 
they need something to make them happy. And the mechanic that supports that is this sort of pun-based combination system, right? <laughs> so you have two elements there. You have the, 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 the we're going to make these jokes, right? And that's, that's writing. And then we're going to have these, this sort of like fulfillment narrative, this sort of like helping other people. And none of that is like, that's well before you actually write a single word or come up with a single pun for it yeah um but that's the that seems like the main work of that story yeah oh man coming up with the puns was so hard yeah because <laughs> we were all like super tired and we're like we don't feel funny but mm. we really want these puns in here yeah <laughs> so and and they couldn't be just like puns like because so many puns are just like this word happens to rhyme with this word and wasn't conducive to the combining two things thing so it was yeah. like not even it was like a specific type of pun that we were trying to come up with mm. so yeah, but that was the like the the hardest part was coming up with like those things first yeah. and then writing the dialogue. Like the one the last character that I wrote was one that uh he doesn't say very much and is like really grumpy and like after writing all the other ones it was it took me like 5 minutes. Mhm. Um even though I'd like agonized over like every single one, like finally I'd gotten enough like creative momentum or something that was just like oh yeah like here's a joke oh that's funny haha mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and he ended up being like kind of the best one so. yeah cool so what are some puns you rejected that weren't good enough Ooh. oh um well there was one that we were gonna do like blue jeans and because it was a lab so there'd be like genetic material and like blue dye for dyeing specimens mm -hmm. sure and then fine blue jeans yeah <laughs> um but you opted not to take that route Yes. Is it because you didn't have enough time or was it too bad a pun? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we had a we couldn't fit it into the narrative because ah. we didn't like none of the characters at that we had made at that point like would want pants. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's that it's that kind of outpost. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they want I mean, they're supposed to be all like professional, right? Ah, yeah. Uh -huh. They're not wearing jeans. Right. <laughs> I don't know. We we just couldn't. Let me look at the the document. It's probably more. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, you had a document. Oh yeah. So Dang. we had a we had a Google Doc that we um like wrote ideas down in, and it's oh. very incomprehensible um, unless you were there. Um, but that's that's smart and clever, especially for a game jam. Keeps you organized. Oh yeah, I highly recommend having some sort of collaborative document. Maybe even just as like a place to put thoughts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was really helpful because, like, from because I ended up going home early and working from home for half of it, right. um, and like it made it super easy to collaborate that way too. So that's smart. Plus, also get get version control that also <laughs> helps with collaborating. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, oh, we tried to do a Dungeons and Dragons pun. It looks like, but it didn't really work because we couldn't. Uh, oh, Aaron thought um, maybe dragon fruit plus funyuns. Like bunions and dragons. Uh, oh, uh, okay, yep. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, didn't really. That's work. a tough sell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we used all of the rest of them. So you you have this collaborative doc, and so tell me a little bit more about the workflow. Like, um, like like what what did it take to round trip some of this stuff? Yeah. Like actually getting it into the build. Oh yeah. Um. So. Uh, one cool thing I learned was about scriptable objects in Unity. Oh, yeah. So, um, 
Charles made these really cool ob- like dialogue objects that um, could be used for anybody talking. So basically, you ha- uh, there was a script that defined all the characters, and then when you were looking at a dialogue object in the Inspector in Unity, um, there would be a little drop down with all the characters. So you'd be like, okay, this t- character is talking, like the player is talking to you know Zelda, mm. and um, then there's a like enum or whatever oh, yeah. a, a mm-hmm. array and you could tell it how many pieces of dialogue you're going to have in that right. dialogue so like oh they're going to talk like have five pieces of dialogue back and forth and then that would populate five different form fields oh for what yeah they would say and you could say oh zelda is going to say like oh hello and then the player says oh hi mm-hmm. and then the next one would be, could be so you could assign you know and you can have multiple people in the same dialogue. So it could be yeah. three people. And then each di- piece of dialogue, you say who's going to say it. So you could ah. just build a scene just right in the inspector. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incidentally, so that's great. exactly how cutscenes in Widget Special work. Oh. With a drop down for characters and then, yeah, how many lines. And yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's how it works in Finjins. I'm pretty sure Charles grabbed it from that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> it's a game. It came, it, so it came together very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that, that's cool. And then it just allows you to just, you know, put your writing into the thing and you don't have to touch any of the code or anything like that. It mm-hmm. was it was super easy to do. Yeah, it lets you change it too without getting in the way of anybody else's workflow. Yeah. Right, exactly, because the dialogue system, like the code itself, pulls in that object and then mm-hmm. just reads whatever there. Yeah. So. And pulls in the sprites for the characters and everything, and so like, I can I can go in and edit things now, and it won't break the game. So yeah, yeah, it's really fun. Cool. Yeah, scriptal objects are when you start using them. At first, you're like, this is an extra abstraction layer I don't need right now. And then when you realize what they can do and where it can where it can save you time down the road, it becomes really really attractive to use it for everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you got to pull back a little bit. Yeah. But um, it's like that joke is like the glyph. Glass with half half full of water, half empty of water. Mm-hmm. And it's like p- optimist. It's half full. Pessimist. It's half empty. Uh, and software engineer. What if we made a glass that could hold anything? <laughs> <laughs> that is literally my brother. <laughs> I mean, we don't need it to hold lava, but what if someday we did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so um, as a result, then like uh, Charles and Lane were the coders in the in the, yes. in the project. Okay, um, they uh, like you didn't the way you interacted was through those scriptable objects. Yes. Okay. Cool. And like it didn't get in there. It was I guess it was a benefit because then they could just focus on the code too. Yeah. So and and I was the one who put in all the dialogue and all the like tool tips for the for the. Uh, like I, I placed all like like Lowell did for your game. Placed all the stuff. Cool. So yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Um, highly recommend trying out writing sometime if you have never done it before. It's very like it makes you see that side way better. Yeah. I guess this isn't really advice for people. It's just my experience. But <laughs> uh, do <laughs> what? <is the> advice. <laughs> well, I mean, if uh, if it's if you're new to it. Um, and you're not new to writing, no, by any stretch. But if but if that's something you want to try and you haven't found a way to try it, Game Jam's a good place. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Very true. Um, because you can what well, you can get help, and you can really just fill it with puns. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> make a ridiculous story about uh, about uh, polar explorers. Yeah. 
So uh, tell me a little, just before we end this topic, tell me a little bit about the game itself. Like it's uh, it's sort of it's uh, like RPG style looking. Like um, oh, so um, kinda. We had uh, Phil who does 3D modeling, mm-hmm. and he's so good at it. Uh, and he made the 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 map. The map. <laughs> <laughs> And it was so cool, like they had open like doors that opened and closed, yeah. mm-hmm. and like a little stairway. And when you walked down the stairway, the upper level like flew out of the scene. And oh. when you walked back oh, up the stairs, the that came back down. Cool. It was so cool. Yeah. Um, and so he did the, the environment stuff. We had another artist, Jajeev, mm-hmm. who did uh he did drew all of the like items you pick up. Mm-hmm. And so we had uh 3D space, but all the stuff that was in it was. 2D. Oh, cool. So your character walked around like isometrically. Yeah. T- 2D and never like turned around. <laughs> ah. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, what's the name of it so people can find it on the site? Oh, it is One Polar Night. And the build that's up there right now, uh, as of Saturday, uh-huh. <laughs> um, is a little bit broken, uh, I think, still. Um, so you can pick up items and you can combine items. But the other items that you combine to make the new item don't go away. Oh. So, <laughs> it was so cool because at the end of the jam, like like the main game mechanic of combining items was yeah. like not in the game yet and was oh. like five minutes left. And so Lane and Charles were like like pair programming on a computer like oh. with the clock like counting down oh my and there's a whole ton of us like just like an audience started forming around them and so <laughs> yeah. like oh my gosh oh my gosh okay decode this oh no that's not working okay put a break point there okay and run no it's still the same. Okay, go there. <laughs> it's like y'all are at NASA or something yeah it's like this was mission control <laughs> yeah wow that's cool <laughs> yeah so but we're gonna work on it a little bit this weekend um well, they are. I'm. I'm doing other stuff, but uh, I'm working from home a little bit, fixing some of the dialogue mistakes because I'm not a very good speller, and scriptable <laughs> objects don't spell tech. For yeah. Me. So, <laughs> but um, but yeah, go check it out. It's called One Polar Night. Cool. Cool. All right, we'll move on to my topic. Uh, my topic is copyright in the public domain. Uh, less exciting, I guess, but uh, really timely uh, because this- if you write a game and you want other oh people boy. to be, <laughs> <laughs> you want other people to be able to remix yep. it and mm-hmm. use it, or even just like make their own version of it, so you might want to put it in the public domain or have a like Creative Commons thing. Okay, go. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this year, for the first time in 20 years, uh, something entered the public domain. Oh, Yay! Um, Wait, what thing? Uh, any, all works, yeah. uh, creative works that registered um, for in uh, 1922. Oh, wow. 23. 23, that's right. Um, the ah. last time anything entered the public domain was stuff from 1922, uh-huh. and that happened in 1998. Oh, my goodness. So the way this thing now, we're all, you you guys are younger than me, but I'm even too young to remember this as a tradition. Mm. But um, it used to be every year there would be like a celebration of like the things entering the public domain this year. Oh. And for the last 20 years, that's not happened. Yeah. And the reason is, is because copyright... Uh, um, Disney is evil. Were, well, we'll get there. Uh, <laughs> uh, copyright protections were extended mm-hmm. in 1998. Uh, it was a law that just did just that. No other, no, that was all it did. Oh. Um, from 75 to 95 years. Yeah. And so it just padded on 20 years to pre-existing works. Uh-huh. And so now that it's been... Now that we've gone through those 20 years... 
uh, things are starting to enter the public domain again. So next year it'll be 1924 uh, uh, and five and so on. Cool. Um, until a few years from now, uh, and this is where the, a lot of the, the, the headlines about this is coming, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon will enter the public domain. Steamboat. Steamboat Willie, that's yeah. right. And uh, so um, uh, Disney was a huge proponent of extending copyright uh, protections throughout the century. Uh, because a little history here, um, uh, copyright protection originally uh, at the founding of this country uh, was 28 years. Oh. So uh, very frequently you would outlive the protection on your works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in the 20th century, by the middle of the 20th century, that had doubled. They, um, uh, I don't have the details on that specifically, but we can link, we'll link a bunch of resources on this. You can look up the details. Yeah. But it, was, it became uh, 56 years. Um, and the... the the, uh, the reason why it was doubled then, I think probably was that there was um, the, the purpose of copyright had changed a little bit and uh, copyright protections had become more central to the economy. Oh. Um, because uh, basically, in, in ye olden days, everything was like an epic poem, right? Like you, sure. sh- it was all, uh, you, sh- you shared uh, art and works and also something like a painting was not easily copyable. Yeah. So uh, the the idea of a copyright, uh, it, it didn't make a lot of sense until you had mass distribution of creative works. Yeah. And um, a copyright protection uh, legally, uh, it's a, it's an art, it's a total artifice, right? It's it's something in, invented by governments. Mm-hmm. And the reason it exists is very similar to patent protection. So if people are familiar with patent law, at least a little bit, um, patents are public, right? I, I make an invention and I, I tell the whole world exactly how it works. Right. And now that's dangerous, right? Because then they can, they can make it themselves. Yeah. But the reason I do that is because in exchange for revealing my secrets, I get legal protection for them. I can sure. exclusively exploit them. Yeah. And that's a huge part of, of, of patent law. But it's a, the, 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 what's great about it is that when patents expire, then they become available to everyone to use. Whereas if I, if I were to invent something and then sell it for a couple of years, then my business goes, I go out of business and then I die and all of my equipment gets, you know, washed away to sea or whatever. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then my knowledge is lost to history. Yeah. And so that is one of the reasons why patent law exists. Now, copyright is different because, uh, I mean, it's a similar structure, but like when you make something, the point is to get it out there, right? right. Yeah. So, um, but it, 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 they are related in that same way in that in exchange for, um, for you uh, distributing it widely, uh, basically uh, for taking that risk, mm-hmm. you get legal protection. Yeah. And that was, you know, uh, 20 odd years, 50 odd years. And it's just been inching up as copyright protection became more and more important to the livelihood of a lot of these companies. Sure. Like, um, uh, you know, and, and I think the Disney is evil is a really like a handy narrative and mostly true. But imagine if you are, you know, um, uh, do, making a work that is uh, that is a series, right? You're not making yeah. new characters every year, and this is just up to you, right? There's no right or wrong way to do it. Yeah. But if there were no copyright protections that were long enough to span your career, for example, mm-hmm. then you would be forced to pivot at a time when it was maybe inconvenient for you. Sure. Because all of a sudden, the works you had would be less exploitable. Yeah. And so there's a real, it's a lot of debate as to what the, because it's a one size fits all solution, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the arguments that have been, that interested up over time were very much, they made a lot of sense to a lot of people. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a huge power grab exactly. Mm-hmm. That said, the law from 1998, total power grab. Yeah. Like seven, it was at that point, it was 75 years. Oh, now yeah. there's a difference between copyright protections for an author, an individual author, and for a company that owns a copyrighted work because the law, the law treats them as the same in a sense. Um, like the, the ownership, like you'll see at the end of a movie, it says for the purposes of copyright, this work was created by Sony or 
or Disney or whatever. Sure. And now that's silly because a company can't create a make a do a creative thing. Mm. Um, but for legal purposes, they own the copyright, right? So that's that's what what all, what all that like legal sort of uh, um, mumbo jumbo is about. Okay. Um, so the, in terms of how they're protected uh, uh, in courts. It's the same, but the the law does distinguish between an author and a and a, and a rights holder in in such that uh, an author gets uh, copyright protection for their lifetime plus a certain amount of time. Mm. So currently, if you make something and you just exploit it on your own, you own the copyright. You have some company distributed or whatever, but it's your copyright. You have it for your life. Yeah, right. It doesn't expire in your lifetime. Plus a certain number of years, so your descendants can continue to ex- exploit it for a certain amount of time. Yeah. The amount of time that is is certainly like uh, um, what is the correct time is debatable. Now, if you're just a company and you own something, companies don't they don't they don't get buried in the cemetery. So um, they, they those copyrights do expire, and um, they expire uh, is currently 95 years after they're created. Mm-hmm. Uh, now that difference for authors, uh, I'm kind of mixing I'm, I'm flipping around in the timeline here, but in 1976. Uh, the copyright law was changed. So okay. before that time, copyright protection was just those 56 years um, for everybody, for all things. Uh, after that, it was changed, it was split so that you'd have the authors and companies would do it differently, right? Um, for the most part, I don't think there's a, a lot of backlash against the idea that a copyright should live with, a, with an author for that author's lifetime. Yeah. The plus so many years, I think is a lot, it, there's a lot of debate about. Okay. I think there's a fair ba- debate to be had about whether a copyright should uh, include the, the life of an author. I, I'm not, I, I could easily fall on either side of those, you know, depending, but I think it's a fair argument to have. Not a lot of people are having that argument. Yeah. The argument people are definitely having, though, is how long a company should be able to sure, exploit yeah. a piece of work that's like a million years old. Right. And Disney is, of course, the you know, main focus point of this yeah. because they are about the only company from the 1920s in, in the creative space that still has going concerns with those same creative works mm-hmm. uh, it's a very it's an unusual situation yeah but as a result of their desire to protect their works because they didn't want a bunch of other people distributing mickey mouse cartoons yeah um i mean maybe they should have been able to but you could understand why they wouldn't want that right um but as a result tons of works the, uh, from the early century have been like denied uh from the public domain and not only is that something where People can't republish it or can't make derivative works, but it also limits access to it. Mm-hmm. Because public domain, it doesn't just mean that it's free to exploit. It also means it's free to, to own, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to pay for a copy, yeah. right? If you can get your hands on it, it's yours. Yeah. And so uh, that has uh, a lot of things, especially music in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of that stuff is just sort of like being held by like Warner Brothers or other you know, rights holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're not being exploited because... They don't. No one would buy them, right? So it. They, but in the public domain, they would. There'd be more interest, and so it's. It's been a bit of a tragedy uh, yeah. in that sense. Um, so you keep using the term exploited. Yes, and I'm curious why you're saying exploited instead of like used or. I mean, I'm just using it in a technical term. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh no! I know. I know. It's not like a negative thing. Right. It sounds like a positive thing every time you say it, which is great. But I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> so the the technical term is just like to use a product. Well, and uh, exploiting, like, I mean, I'm just there's not like a definitive i'm just sure. using that phrase because yeah. it, if i'm exploiting my work it means i'm using usually means i'm selling it i'm i'm gaining from it from its use okay not just using it yeah okay. i'm 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 getting something in return yeah. for its okay. use right okay that's usually what that means cool cool um generally it just means putting it for sale yeah for okay. the most part that's cool um but it also means like licensing or it means if you own the copyright that means you can prevent other people from copying it including yourself mm. right if you have the copyright to a work you can keep it from the world yeah. Right. It's that's your choice. 
And so um, without the copyright, other people could do it. So it's, copyright is as much about you exploiting a work as it is about preventing others from exploiting the work. Okay. And it's basically because you are the artist, you own it, you get to decide. Yeah. And that's, that's an important concept, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's an important concept to the development of creative arts in a way that's different from culturally what it was before the, the, the notion of copyright. And so those protections are important. And certainly, ga- I mean, um, you know, this is just a general interest topic, but we'll, we'll tie it into games uh, a little bit later. But mm-hmm. the, the sort of the preview of that is that you know, um, game developers are some of the m- most at risk of their works being stolen and, and exploited by others because copyright protections are very weak when it comes to things like game mechanics and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into that as well. Mm-hmm. They were. I was reading on the on the public domain day website or whatever mm-hmm. how like stuff from the '90s could have been like published or someone could have taken up the mantle of all these of all these things that have just been left like no one's working on them yeah it's called um orphaned yeah, orphaned orphan, that's orphan works mm. and so a lot of that is is uh, things that yeah they could be the source of of a remixed work or a derivative work or or an inspiration or something but not only can they not be accessed and exploited by future artists a lot of times they're just hard to find sure and that becomes very difficult it also means the legacies of certain artists who are not uh who are not commercially popular in this day become lost because it's harder for like libraries to stock them. Yeah. Um, not just, not because it's actually libraries can stock anything, but um, it's, there are physically fewer copies. Right. Like because, because of that. So it's a, it's a, these all have all these things of add on effects. Um, and a lot of in gaming, people are familiar with the term abandoned wear, mm-hmm. right? Uh, um, software that the, a creator has stopped working on or stopped selling. And, you know, that's a relatively new concept in the, in the, in the time frames we're talking about. Um, but a lot of it has a lot of the same things. People will distribute abandonware on torrent sites uh, without any sort of ethical qualms because they're not they, they feel they're not hurting anybody. Yeah. And that's generally true. But at the same time, what if you know, who's to say if someone didn't abandon it on purpose? Right. Right. And so it becomes very kind of tricky. But a lot of these orphan works, it's pretty unambiguous. It's like there's nobody there to protect them. They're owned by some conglomerate media corporation or they're owned by a family that just does no interest in doing anything with it, mm-hmm. but uh, but also wouldn't necessarily object to other people doing it, but like isn't going to volunteer it freely. Yeah. Um, so it becomes very tricky, and these are all very case by case in a lot of these situations. There are there are a couple of famous things that just entered the do- public domain on accident, mm. which is sort of interesting. Um, Anne Rand, everybody's favorite terrible author, uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wrote a novella called Anthem, and oh. I read this in high school, and it's it's a very short concept. It's very it's a it's it's amazing how how short it is considering it's an Anne Rand work. But, <laughs> um, it was developed. Um, it, it was published, I believe, as a serial in a magazine. I don't remember the exact history of it, but through like they just forgot to file for copyright extension, which is a thing you used to have to do, and um, so it was just uh, it just entered the public domain before these protections were enacted. And so a lot of times the things about the um, uh, when, when the copyrights were extended, it didn't put anything, didn't take anything out of the public domain. It just extended retroactively things that were not yet in the public domain. Ah. Um, so things that were already in the public domain, either through, through that normal process or by accident, stayed there. Mm. And so that's a pretty famous example. And so there are lots of, um, so you can just get a copy. Anyone can publish the book. Um, it's sort of interesting because um, particularly Ayn Rand, who is a, like an ardent libertarian, <laughs> it's sort of a fun. Anyway, um, <laughs> but there's a couple of examples of things that you'll find, like certain songs that just forgot to to to, to reenter uh, uh, their extensions and stuff like that. Um, very recently, uh, the song Happy Birthday. Oh, um, yeah. 
Uh, you, you never heard it on TV, you know, because yeah. it was always uh, he's a jolly good fellow. The only reason we know he's a jolly good fellow is, as, is because that's what people sang on television instead of Happy Birthday. Oh. Because Happy Birthday was uh, ha- there's a there was a copyright claim on it, um, and uh, that was actually thrown out in court recently. Mm. Um, and so as as recently as this year, uh, there are TV shows now singing Happy Birthday to, to their their characters. <laughs> <laughs> finally, after all this time, we can um, finally have a birthday, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think that would have gone into public domain in a couple years anyway. Yeah, but. Oh. Um, uh, I, I don't know. But anyways, um, so like there's a lot of these fun examples of different things. Yeah. But um, what's uh, interesting is like what you can do with public domain works. So this is a really interesting um, element where you're like, oh, when, when Mickey Mouse becomes public domain, then suddenly everyone can just make Mickey Mouse stuff and mm-hmm. whatever, do, do whatever they want. That's not actually true. Um, the, the what goes into public domain will be Steamboat Willie. Yeah. And so uh, Disney will certainly be interested in keeping an eye on whoever tries to exploit the public domain status of those characters and those elements. Sure. Um, Steamboat Willie itself, you can have a copy and publish it. You can, you can, I don't know, you could sell it, but who would buy it? Because yeah. it's free. Um, th- that actual work is available. The characters, the concepts, like what actually is a, a work yeah. is actually kind of fraught in a sense. Oh. Um, so for example, Mickey Mouse, like the design of the character from Steamboat Willie is actually very different from the modern uh, design of Mickey Mouse. Sure, yeah. So what's going to happen, this is definitely going to happen, is when that character, because the character will become public domain along with the first uh, 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 thing, okay. there will be uh, lots of people licensing merchandise with Mickey Mouse. Oh, yeah. And it will be legal. Mm-hmm. But Disney will be checking every one of them for like the exact coloring, the, does they have gloves or not, like all these things, mm. and getting ready to sue those who, who go outside and probably, uh, you know, every edge case as well. And they're within every right to do that because they do own a lot of, because a lot of those creative, those, that work yeah. was done a decade later, oh. right? And it's not public domain. Yeah. And like the question is, is like, where's the line exactly, mm-hmm. right? Like what is a creative decision and what isn't exactly? Steamboat Willie's a black and white cartoon. Yeah. So what color is are Mickey's shorts? Oh. Like is that, yeah. the, is that in the public domain? Like because presumably in that time, they, they, you know, there was a creative decision. Like, if it was ever in color, or if we ever paint a, a mural or something, this is the color it will be. Mm-hmm. But is that part of the the work that becomes public domain or not? Um, it's, yeah. it, it's these are not easy questions to answer. Yeah. Um, additionally, trademark is a very interesting component. So um, you can distribute Steamboat Willie once this this comes in public domain in a few years. Um, you can make your own Mickey Mouse cartoons, mm-hmm. uh, even name the character Mickey Mouse, but you cannot like use that three-headed logo uh, for oh, you know, sure. that three-circled logo yeah. for your thing because that symbol is actually a trademark of Disney, and trademarks don't expire; they're different from copyright. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, when they're getting into working creatively, they sort of mix these concepts up. I know so, I did. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, copyright is just a, a creative expression, a piece of work, right? Sure. And you don't have to register this anywhere. As soon as you create a piece of work. Even if you don't show it to anybody in the universe, you have legal protections on it, right? Okay. Enforcing it's another matter. It's why you generally try to register your works with the copyright office. Yeah. A trademark is something else. You do have to apply for a trademark for the various governments in, in, in which you'd like to exploit that trademark. And then the, when the trademark's granted to you, it actually prevents other people from having similar trademarks or confusing marks. It's, oh. it's different. It is a piece of creative work in a sense, mm-hmm. but it's not protected as a creative work. It's protected as a piece of trade, as, um, as, as your position in the marketplace. Okay. And so if somebody tries to sell Mickey Mouse, Mickey Mouse cartoons, um, uh, Disney's going to say, well, we have Mickey Mouse TM. Like, sorry, yeah. 
You can't. You can call them something else, and you can use the character. It, it, I'm sure there'll probably be lots of lawsuits, but like, um, but can you say a Mickey Mouse cartoon? I mean, technically it is right, right. But can you? You can't. Can you trade on the name Mickey Mouse? Yeah, it, it's kind of unknown. These are like new questions in a sense oh. because um, the the interest of it and, and when things enter the public domain, they sort of enter it whole cloth. Like this is the the first. Um, you know, it's it's becoming the idea of like the the era of marketing as well as creative works being mixed together. Yeah. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, now the question is, is why maybe what happens in a couple of years when, when Steamboat Willie's on the, on the chopping block mm-hmm. is Disney just going to go back to Congress and say, I, I think it would be 150 years seems fair. <laughs> um, actually, no, uh, there's no indication that's going to happen. Okay. Partly because there's a lot more um, uh, anti uh, corporate sentiments uh, uh, um, uh, 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 than there was in 1998. Sure. Yeah. Um, in 2012, there was a huge movement to stop SOPA. Does everyone remember that? Yeah. Um, that was a, a, um, a, a law that was intended to um, allow copyright holders to enforce their works more aggressively on the internet. Right. Um, There's a huge blackout of a bunch of different websites on a certain day to protest the, the potential ramifications that got defeated. Um, there's also sort of the pro net neutrality uh, yeah. movements. Basically the public is more educated on what, what's at stake. Mm-hmm. Also 95 years is a really long time. And I think even Disney would have a hard time arguing any good faith arguments that it should be longer than that. Yeah. The fact that they went from 75 to 95 is an incredible like an, they, an incredible git. Yeah. But I, I feel like I'm not sure how much lobbying could actually convince any even like vulnerable senator to be to like actually fall in line with that. And, and I, I imagine Disney is probably not even that interested in it either. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not. I mean, maybe they have like, you know, their own uh, uh, motives that <laughs> to protect their company at all costs. Mm. But like, I think you have to be pretty nefarious to like have a straight face uh, to a certain point. Yeah. Right? It's, it's much less of a popular idea or. Yeah, you're right. I, I, the way you said it, like people are more educated about it, so it is a very unpopular idea. Like you see how uh, people react to Nintendo, um, uh, you know, taking down remakes or yeah. whatever and stuff. And I'm sure Disney's looking at that and going, "Oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't do something about this because right. it'll look really bad." Yeah. <laughs> and, and the truth is, is Disney's going to be protected by trademark yeah. laws and their bajillions of dollars, right? So like they're not <laughs> and everything they're buying, like they own everything now. Yeah. So. <laughs> they're a diversified <laughs> company at this point. They're yeah. It's so funny because you know I watched one or other cartoons like uh, Bugs Bunny, but I've mm. like I've seen maybe two Mickey Mouse cartoons. It's yeah, so right? strange <laughs> how weird. like it, it it's this sort of different echelon of like Disney's identity. Yeah, they are a very strange and singular company in American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, a lot of times, uh, especially when we talk about big business. Um, when we're very critical of that, yeah. we, we feel that as a very uniquely American problem, mm-hmm. right? Um, mostly because the biggest businesses in the world are American, yeah. um, and they tend to be the biggest problems. <laughs> but um, in fact, a lot of the good faith arguments, uh, if you can call them that, for the 1998 extension was that in the European Union, uh, extensions were already longer. Oh. And so it was actually, that was one of the reasons why it was a little harder to uh, mount an opposition, is because... Um, um, like uh, parity amongst all the, the nations of the world is very important for, for companies that distribute their works acro- around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, software developers get their works uh, uh, um, you know, pirated all the time in China, for example. Yeah. And so you see lots of companies uh, trying to uh, lobby uh, the American government and the Chinese government to crack down on these things. And a lot of that is to go to um, uh, multinational organizations like the World Trade Organization or the UN mm-hmm. and say like let's have a standard we all agree on so that we can enforce these similarly and of course the only people who have the ability to sort of make those 
get those audiences are the ones who are mostly in, our, in favor of increasing those those limits. Sure. Um, but there is something to be said about having standards that are, that are the same around the world. Otherwise, especially with the the smaller world we live in, your copyright expires in uh, you know in Belgium. Well, then those things could be distributed to Americans. Oh, right. Yeah. And so if, you know, uh, you are, you as a copyright holder are not just interested in the protections in your locality, but around the world. Mm. And it's increasingly so. Um, It's maybe less a day to day concern for, uh, you know, indie developers and indie filmmakers and so on, but it's a real thing. Yeah. And so you kind of have to see, like, oh, you can, you understand why a lot of these companies are so protective of of, of it because it can be a big, and you know that's what that's where they make their money. Like mm-hmm. that's why they're huge companies, and yeah. so they, they are protecting what makes them the size they are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that twenty year extension is just egregious. And the thing is, it's never going back, mm. right? Like people have celebrated the 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 uh, the appearance of new works in the public domain this year, and it, but nothing's changed, right? The law didn't law didn't revert or anything. It's yeah. Sometimes it's like, oh, things are better now. Like it, the twenty year ban expired. That's not what happened. Yeah. Still 95 years. It's going to be that way forever. I mean, as far as I know, there's going to be a, there has to be a huge lobbying effort to roll those back. And I think that it'd be hard to under, to, to imagine the, the interest that people would have in promoting that because there's even amongst uh, pro uh, uh, creative commons groups, pro net, net neutrality groups, mm-hmm. it, it kind of doesn't feel like a real good use of their time, but I, it's kind of sad. I wish there was a constituency for rolling back those protections to like 55 years, which is yeah. still pretty long. Right. Yeah. Um, but there probably is never going to be, and particularly because a lot of those a lot of times, uh, like I said, those things got extended in America because they were already that way in Europe, and so um, I feel like that's never going to happen again. So we're kind of, but it is good every year that tradition's coming back. Every yeah. year there'll be new things in the public domain, yeah. and um, so um, I did want to talk about one example of something I used in a work of mine. Oh, and then we can talk a little bit about how you know maybe brainstorm some ideas of how game developers can can sort of exploit some of these things. Yeah. But um, there's an Irving Berlin song called All By Myself, which uh, was uh, published in 1921. And so it's been in the public domain for 22 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I use that in a film of mine. Ooh. And I, was, I did a lot of research to see like, oh, I'd love to be able to use this. Um, there's a sequence in a film I made where uh, a character is sort of daydreaming and then the, the people around her in her daydream, this, it's a, like a little musical moment. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun to do. But I was like, oh, it'd be really fun to have like everybody lip sync to this to a recording, have a scratchy record sound, and have that be part of the experience. Yeah. But as I was researching this, a lot of the recordings of this song were made in 1925. Oh. <laughs> and so the recordings are not public domain. But the yeah. song itself, the sheet music, was published in 1921. Okay. And the song didn't become more popularly recorded until a little bit later. In fact, there were not even a lot of recordings in those days. Um, and so, um, the, the, what I, so had that extension not been uh, done in 1998, I would have, would have been able to, to do that originally. Uh, um, what I did instead is I recorded a new version of it. I, the, the actor who would, who would be singing the song, I had them record the vocals. I got, I got some, you know, I, I did a, an original version of the song. Cool. Um, and that was really fun to do, but it changed the character of the work I was making. Oh, yeah. And I, I've always thought about that, like that, that, the sort of world we live in and those little, those elements and how f- far reaching those, those, the consequences of that stuff can be. Yeah. And so I think a lot of times, uh, one of the diversifiers for Global Game Jam right, yeah. was to use a newly, uh, a, 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 a piece of work that was newly placed in the public domain. And so there's definitely a lot of interest among game devi- d- uh, designers uh, and developers to do something with this now that, it, now that we've got it again, mm-hmm. now that there are new things. It's also uh, renewing interest in older works that have been in the public domain. For yeah, a long time. I kind of hope they do that every year because, like, that would be really cool, just so people see that is an option. And yeah, they they think of it as an option. 
Yeah. And uh, it's not just about like taking a piece of work and putting it in your own work. It's about coming up with derivative works and about and taking elements and characters and, and, and or doing sequels. Yeah. Right? Anybody on the planet can write a Sherlock Holmes novel. You can do it. It's allowed. All your fanfics are true. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And th- that's a really good example because a lot of people don't realize that because there are very famous Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Yeah. And so a lot of people think like, oh, they got the rights from the, the, the Conan Doyle estate or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and there is, they actually, uh, the, the, the Doyle estate does have an interest in the works that come out, but they don't get paid for them because yeah. that is public domain works. Right. And so you go ahead make your Sherlock Holmes game. Yeah. Like, why not? Cool. You know, uh, reinvent Sherlock Holmes any way you like. Yeah. Um, and of course, Disney did it with the great mouse detective and oh, a yeah. lot of their, a lot of their films are adaptations of public domain works. Yeah. I- ironically. Yeah, they are. That's. <laughs> yep. Hmm. <laughs> hmm, Disney. Yeah. I'm humming at you. Yep. Yep. <laughs> There's this there's this show that I used to watch when I was a kid called Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd Century. Yes! Oh Do you my know god! That song? Yeah. Oh, Sherlock Holmes in the 22nd, 22nd Century. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> well, that song is under copyright. Thank you. Hey, we did under 30 seconds. <laughs> ah, see that's not that, that's a very common notion of what fair use means. Oh. We can talk about that in a future episode. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, you're you're actually fine for other reasons than it was less than 30 seconds. But, <laughs> <Phew>. <laughs> Free advertising. Yeah. <laughs> right. Watson is a robot. It's great. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but like that's the kind of works, the creative the work that you can do when, when something's in the public domain. Yeah. And it's not just about like kickstarting your innovation because like, I mean, as an artist, I could kind of just rather come up with my own thing. Sure. But there's something about taking something that people know and give it another twist, give it a spin. Yeah. Because then you can leverage people's familiarity. You can, you can uh, confound their expectations. You can make comments on... Uh, what those things were in the time they were contemporaneous, yeah. but also adapting them to your own time and maybe like confronting those differences. It, it's a type of creativity that is uh, just not as common because it's not as accessible yeah. as it maybe used to be. And the things even now that we're able to do with that are so far removed from our culture mm-hmm. that it becomes harder to find those connections other than sort of superficially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's a parallel between that and games and that like you'll take a, an, like an old game like an old platformer Mario for yeah. example and like you twi- you can build your own platformer that is like a twist on Mario's genre like mm-hmm. plenty of games have done the thing where like you know Mario can jump on Goombas in this game if Mario jumps on Goomba you can see the whole story of like that Goomba's family or something and <laughs> what it means when that Goomba dies and all that stuff they've yeah. done that kind of things like you can do that for past works and experiences in, in that way and a lot of the reasons you can do that in video games mm-hmm. is because those mechanics are not protected right right and the the cr- derivative works you do are are protected by fair use mm-hmm. for different reasons right because they're sort of parody or, or because they're commenting on yeah um but the me- like uh nintendo in fact patents are uh, software patents are a very hotly debated issue right like nintendo could have tried to get a patent on jumping on an enemy to kill it yeah right like that's something they could have done um, but the enforceability of that is, you know, up well, in the air. Well, that's like, what is it? The thing where you play games during a load screen? Like, oh, isn't yeah, that yeah. Mini games in a loading screen, right. Or you couldn't until recently, I think. Yeah, I think that was thrown out. Yeah. Um, but that, that did, it did change some people's behaviors and yeah, it could come up with other solutions to, to those sorts of things. Now, of course that's, that seems like a tragedy, but also think about, um, uh, Donut County. Yeah, and yeah. Donut County was, was straight up ripped off uh, by one of those uh, uh, like high volume mobile d- uh, developers, right? And they made a ton of money. Yeah, uh, Threes um, was uh, ripped off by Twenty Forty Eight, or yeah. the other way around. I honestly don't remember. I think it was Threes. 
Yeah, it was ripped off. <laughs> and and those companies they 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 exploit the creative works of others, yeah. and then they have a, maybe a better marketing sense, and then they they lay leverage and they exploit that yeah. for for the maximum gain, which then takes market away from that. Now, in in light of those, who's to say we shouldn't have software patents, mm. right? But at the same time, software patents have been very damaging in other in other cases. They prevent innovation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um. It, there's a very famous, and I'll put this in the show notes as well. But the um the Oracle versus Google trial over Android, um, and the Java runtime. It's this epic notion of of, of where Oracle, which bought Sun Microsystems, didn't even create Java themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had the rights to the Java uh, runtime, and they accused Google of using a lot of their private APIs. When they were developing the the the, the Davlik runtime for Android, which yeah. was which used a lot of the similar thing, the Java as a language is open source, but the runtime was closed source, and so um, it, there's this complete crazy thing. And the truth is, is Google kind of did it, like yeah. they kind of did. Mm-hmm. But the truth, but like the law kind of came down on their side. Like even if they did, it didn't cause real damage, and it, the, the 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 those software patents were unenforceable. Right now. Uh, that's one side where it sort of seems like, well, Oracle was just out to stop a competitor and prevent innovation in the industry. Yeah. But sometimes it's uh, the case where um, those having those patents could protect people from actually being have their work stolen. Yeah. And so it, it's hard to like. That's why case law is really important in these things. Is so you can have like established sort of standards and flexibilities and stuff like that. Right. Um, but it's a really hard question to answer. As, as a creative person, you have to say like, oh, as a creative consumer. Like I want access to whatever I want. Uh, I don't want things like DRM. I yep. don't want. I don't want to have uh, creators being penalized. I don't want them to have to license the thing they're using, which costs me more money when I want to buy it from them. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want those things, right? Yeah. You don't, and you don't want to people limit limited in their creativity to create derivative works or create extra things. Yeah. And then as a creator, you're like, I don't want people to create derivative works of my characters because then that will dilute. The, the impact of my character in the creative right. marketplace. Yeah. And so it's not, there's no one answer. I think that right? it's important to like ask the question. I don't, I, yeah. it kind of, I think that a lot of with, with this, with this law, a lot of it was like delaying the question. And now mm-hmm. we're finally getting to the point where we can start asking the questions again. Yeah. And I think that's good. Um, so we just got to start asking that question a lot more frequently. Yeah. My, my thing is that a lot of times the law helps the big companies, but doesn't help the little creators who mm-hmm. don't have enough money to like I was follow a lot of artists on Twitter and a lot of times their pin like they make artist pins or whatever and their mm-hmm. pin designs get stolen by big companies that then put them on yeah, yeah. and it's like like uh, obviously the same thing just like oh they moved a line here so it's totally different <laughs> but not yeah. and like they have hard, like it takes them so much effort to to go after those claims where where like uh, a big company can just be like, "Hey, company, shut down all these posts or whatever, shut yeah. down all these yeah. things," and like it's they have enough resources to do that, and so like, and those, those are cases of clear copyright infringement. Like, there's no yeah. wiggle room there, like software patent stuff. Like, that's, yeah. they stole it. Yeah, like what are you gonna do? Yeah. But it's but it but sometimes the artist just has to let it go because like they would be take way too much of their time and oh, effort yeah. to. It would cost them more money to get their money back than it would to. A hundred percent of the time, it would cost them like too much money. Yeah, like, that is. It is. Yeah, we don't. You can't call the cops on someone. Right. You have to sue. Mm-hmm. Right. This is. These are civil matters. Um, in fact, and that's a question: is like, should the, a lot? What is what rises to criminal copyright inf- infringement? Right. Um, the reason that the the you see the FBI warning in front of all those uh, Alberta movies yeah. is actually just a scare tactic by the MPA. <laughs> oh. 
right? It's technically true, yeah, right? But it's like it's an effort to give the force of government to a lot of these things, which are civil matters. Sure. Um, and you know, like they're not like scams, but they're definitely presented in a way to give you an impression of things that are, yeah. So like the the leverage those companies have is so much greater Mm -hmm. than any individual artist. Yeah. Wow. So it's like a bummer, guys. (laughs) Oh. Well. But you know, it's it's an it's important to consider, and that's why yeah. that's why I'm sort of using this public domain as an entry point into this idea. Yeah. To, to think about when you create your own creative things, like what what freedoms are granted to you to take the inspirations from the world, yeah. and not just because they exist or because artists post things on on Twitter that inspire you, but because of the legal protections that people have to be able to distribute and share, and the legal protections you have to create derivative works of a certain type mm-hmm. and what are you prevented from doing and how does that hurt you as an artist but then also as an artist yourself how can you be protected and how can you also let go and 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 allow your works to be created like it's it's cultural and ethical uh, yeah. almost more than legal in a lot of these ways and yeah. the legal frameworks we do are, attempt to define it and they really are an expression of what we believe as a culture in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and so uh, when people have very ideological like this is the way it should be it, it's always like well there's always somebody on the other side of that and the question is, a lot of times, like Martha, you're saying, like all these small, like maybe there should be, like the DCMA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, it allows people to, to issue takedown requests. And actually, it allows anyone to issue takedown requests. It's okay. actually fairly liberal on who has access to it. But the people who do it are like, you know, 20th Century Fox. Right, like those yeah. are the people who do it. And then, and then you, on YouTube, you get one strike uh, with no arbitration if, if Fox says you violated their thing. Yeah. Like famously, someone posted a, 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 a clip of a video game to YouTube, and then Fox took that clip and put it in an episode of Family Guy, oh. and then the the original clip got taken down oh because it, because it was a content match with their automated systems. Oh, and so wow! But who owned the copyright to that? Because the person who posted it didn't make that game. Yeah, they just posted that clip. And so, how, what what is their protection as a creative artist for creating a, a, a screenshot or, or, or a, a video clip of a game that right. is their performance in the game? Like the law isn't able to handle a lot of these things. And then the automated systems we have tend to really favor the people who have the enforcement to do it. The DCMA yeah. is something I could really go on about how terrible it really is. Yeah. And how it, <laughs> it doesn't give, uh, it doesn't give people the, um, the benefit of the doubt in a lot yeah. of cases. Um, but yeah, but no, think about that. I yeah. think when you create your own works and like, I mean, I'm making Metro Nexus, which is a spiritual successor to a game that is less than 95 years old. Mm-hmm. And I can do that because there are no protections on the, the mechanics that I'm using. Right. And so that's something that's definitely benefited me. Yeah. Um, but I also mean, at the same time, you have to wonder like, well, yeah, but I stay away from, from actual protected um, uh, artwork. And I do that not just as a way to avoid getting into trouble, mm-hmm. but also to keep me working on my own things. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so you, it, it can be inspiring to be limited in some ways. True. So lots of stuff guys. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed that talk. <laughs> oh, one piece of trivia. Yes. In Metro Nexus, there's going to be a song in the final uh, level uh-huh. that is actually from that video game. And oh. I can do that because that song is in the public domain. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Which they did because they didn't have any money to hire a composer. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's really, really wonky, but it's super interesting. And if you you know, if you like these wonky topics, you'll and it, it can really inspire you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's awesome. That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club and your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it or are nice like us. We really do need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too.
We also want to hear directly from you, so follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club, and email us at contact at nicegames.club. Lastly, you can find out more about the show and your nice hosts, as well as get all of the links and show notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.